0: This is Britta Smith, historian of the neurology section. Here with a woman on the street interview with Darcy Umfred, who I happened to find during a vestibular SIG meeting. So thank you very much for agreeing to uh, the interview, Dr. Umfred. And you've already started on the first question. So tell you, me. You I... asked the questions. No, you told. You were starting. To oh, talk... I just was going to
1: say that I started my PT degree at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh-huh. And then I went back and got my master's. A science at Boston University, and got my doctorate at Syracuse University. And it's just been a process of mm-hmm. of trying to understand how the mind, how how the our nervous system processes. You know, and once once you understood kind of synergic programming, and you understood the you know the the, the functioning of the sensory and motor systems, then I went back. My master's degree was it, I took a lot of courses both in biomechanics and that along with advanced occupational therapy courses in perception. So I added the perceptual component to the nervous system and then my doctorate was in the uh, theories of learning. I, would, I wanted to figure out the higher level thought process and you know and it just it all gets back to you know how does the patient exhibit the signs they exhibit.
0: It's just so, real fun. so when did you earn your initial degree in physical therapy? I graduated in 68. Okay. And so what types of theoretical basis did you kind of emerge into the clinic with that maybe have been blown away since then? Well, the one thing I found
1: when I was in PT school, you know, was you were learning approaches. So you were learning PNF and, and NDT and uh, Brunstrom's approach and R- Margaret Rood's approach and that kind of thing. And for me, it was the first time in my PT education that I could say, ah, there are options, you know, and I guess, you know, I wouldn't say I was a skeptic, but I just couldn't buy that somebody having a stroke in New York, was terribly different nervous system than somebody that had a stroke in England. So, if the nervous systems are comparable, then why wouldn't the two approaches be options for me to treat? Why, couldn't I mix and match them? That is, if I... Based that. And so my goal, which I can remember my therax teacher laughing at me, because she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to develop an integrated approach based on science. I said, because it, I just don't buy that I have to use this cookbook. And if I use this half of this cookbook and half of that cookbook, the patient's going to die. You know, and, and I mean, it, and that's kind of how you were taught. You know, people were so you know, they truly believed that they had to do it exactly. And I, I just couldn't buy that. And when I got to know many of the, the, those people, um, I got to know Margaret Roode, I got to know Maggie Knott, I got to know Barbara Bobath. Bobath, um, I, I realized that they used words to describe what they did. But what they did was much more than their words. And when you looked at it from a visual-spatial, Perspective, they did a lot of the same things. They just use different words to describe it. And so, you know, I, I, as we got into motor, you know, I, I've had so many wonderful clinical experiences, and some of them so far beyond our understanding of neuroscience that I spent my life trying to ground experiences. But it just leads to more experiences, and um, you know, I just kept thinking that. People, colleagues, when they say, you know, now that we're into understanding neuroscience and motor learning, and and then they'll they'll criticize those people from the past and say, you know, well, they they didn't ha- they didn't understand motor learning and motor you know control, thus they did the wrong things. And I go, have you ever watched any of them? They weren't doing the wrong things. They didn't have the theory. They tried to use the science of their day to explain what they did. But they were master clinicians, and so, and their patients got better, and they got better quickly, and they shifted their their handling and their control of the patient and empowering, you know, very much empowered the patient to their own movement very quickly, mm-hmm. um, because that came natural to all of them. So even though they didn't know the theory, they were practicing the theory that we know today, which I find very exciting you know is that you know we have teachers from the past we need to acknowledge them because they've gotten us to where we are you know they started it off Um, but when i started teaching an integrated approach i was teaching at temple university after i got my master's degree in in 70 and uh, my colleagues there said you've got to teach us what you're teaching your students because they're creating change in the clinic and we don't understand because they were into these approaches. And I taught the students to think and apply and what could be the science behind what, what, you know, we didn't have efficacy studies. We had science, you know, and the more you could ground what you did in science, to me, the more credibility we had as a profession. Um, So that was when I taught my first Con Ed course was at Temple, you know, and I was like 25, 24, 25, you know, and that just has gone, that was that kind of evolution of, of teaching around the world, Con Ed courses, just kind of arose from that. And uh, it still goes back to, you know, each patient has something to teach us. You know, I think that, that once I got out of my PT program, and even though I got a master's and a doctorate, I met many wonderful teachers, and many wonderful lecturers, and many you know, pre- presenters, I think the true teachers that I have had have been the patients. Because they, they tell you, their bodies tell you exactly what they
0: need. Do you recall one patient or a couple patients in particular that kind of helped you come to that aha moment? Well. I
1: started working with individuals post head trauma um, right away, and I was at a county hospital, and most of the people there with head traumas they were on the respiratory ward because many of them were draped. and they were there for maintenance until they died. And what is PT? What we did is we went up and we did range of motion, and then we delegated range of motion daily to the aide. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what was standard practice. And this is going to sound very strange, but I put my hand on the first client that I had, first patient, and this gentleman was post nine months, um, catastrophic head injury, brain on the cement. You know, please put it back in the vault. You know, kind of a thing. Um, and he had two huge eye on his chest because he was oscillating between the vestibular, sp- you know, and the reticular spinal tract. You know, so he was oscillating digging his hole, ground his teeth down to nothing. Yes, thank you, and um, I went to put my hands on him and in my head I heard get me out of here and I went I just you know the, the it and, and that's a whole different story of intuition and you know and I've tried to study intuition for the last 35 years to understand it because if we can teach it then we can teach people to become masters you know Versus they either have it or they don't have it, you know, but, but um, anyway, you know, I couldn't not work with him. I, I mean, it was so shocking to me. And so the first thing I realized is I had to get him, I had to wake him, I had to wake up his nervous system. It was agitated, so I didn't want to do anything that would, I, I needed to do something that would dampen it but allow it to. So all I could think of was cold water, and Maggie Knott was dumping, you know, people with post everything in 32 degrees of ice chips, at, you know, and I said, well, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can start off at 78, and then I can add ice chips to the bath and do it in the morning, every day. to And then as soon as we finished, um, I'd put him on the mat and work with movements so that I would warm him back up. And, um, you know, he got down to, I think we got down to almost 68 degrees. Now I have Raynauds so, and my hands were always in the water with him. So I was, you know, it was as painful to me as it was to him. But I think it calmed the, you know, the, it, yeah, it calmed the pain, the the cutaneous receptors and the pain receptors and the everything that was activating the the reticular system and you know making the limbic system go crazy and you know it calmed that you know and but it also brought him to you know more of a level of consciousness and and he had a lot of times where he spontaneously made huge jumps. I can remember one time I went in and I, his name was Clef and Cliff you want to get on the mat today and he goes, No, I don't want to get on the mat. Now he had not spoken a word. And he all of a sudden had spontaneous speech. And I said, Jill, okay, you don't want to get on the mat today. What do you want to do? You know, And he just kept talking. As I heard, about 300 pills run across the ward on the floor because the nurse was walking by with all of her pills. And she, <laughs> she dropped the pills and there were pills everywhere. But I just tried to stay very calm because I didn't want to... You know, I, I wanted him to keep going with that, you know, and he, he always had speech from then on, you know, and he was, it, he, about maybe four months into the treatment, with him, um, no, maybe before that, probably about a month into the treatment, when he was just beginning to come out, um, a doctor, a very famous orthopedic surgeon came out, because the insurance company wanted him to evaluate, but, and he hold him up to stand and the kids on his toes and you know, arched in an extension and you know, uh, and he, the doctor said we need to do heel cord lengthening, we need to release the adductors, we, you know, we need to make him a functional, you know, wheelchair person. And my doctor at this county hospital, who was really a GP, asked, gave me a letter and she just asked me what he's, doing. and I said, well, he doesn't have any contractures anywhere. He has full range, but you can't you can't throw him into standing with that kind of pressure on the ball of his feet without him going into strong support reaction. But you don't need to go surgically release him. You just need to not treat him. That. Right. So the doctor asked me to write the letter and the reasons why. And then he signed my letter and refused the surgery. And three months later the doctor came back, the orthopedic surgeon came back and Cliff was Ambulating fairly independently in the parallel bars by then. Wow. And the doctor said, he can't do that. (laughs) And, you know, and and then he did some perceptual tests. Well, I'd been working just intuitively on him learning about where his body is in space, you know, so I had him prone and I do, you know, have him mirror his legs. And, you know, I just, I mean, I knew that sensory motor system needed to be reintegrated you know, um, after such a long time of... But, you know, the doctor kept saying, he can't do this, he can't do that. And then he finally said, well, I'll show you. And he took him back up to, we went back up on the ward, and he injected him with valet, IV, and which suppressed the higher centers. And of course, all of his pathology came immediately back. And the doctor said, I'd really like to hire you because I think I can convince you that early surgery is the only way to treat these patients. And I thought, we're coming from an entirely different paradigm. And, it, and, and you know, I was only 21, but I knew what we did as a PT was a very different paradigm than what the doctors did as doctors. And, and it took me a long time to understand when he kept saying, he can't do that, you know, he can't walk, and, and I'm looking at Cliff walking I'm thinking, is there something wrong with my cognitive processing or isn't walking one foot after the other, you know, and isn't he doing that, so why are you telling me he can't do that? Well, that was my beginning adventure with head injured individuals, and I have worked with, I would say in my professional life, probably maybe 75 to 100 individuals post head injury have woken up during therapy working with them. And you know, it's it's a very it's a very emotional you know, highly you know, I don't want to say spiritual because that has a lot of connotations. But when somebody goes from a lower level of consciousness to this plane of reality and you're guiding them there and then they're there. It's 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 a beautiful experience and you feel very privileged. To have had that opportunity, even if you only know them for 30 minutes in your life. You know, I can remember all those patients. And, you know, it's, it, it really has taught me how much our profession can offer to individuals. doesn't matter if it's wellness, all the way to severe trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, we just have to be open, you know, to allowing them to show us what they need, and then we have the tools to help them. Why I was so committed to Mm 3-STEP in uh, uh, 2003, Mm -hmm. I got kicked out of the reference committee because I wanted to bring to the floor of the house the ICF (laughs) model. And they kicked me out of the reference committee and said, you know, physical therapists are never going to use that model. We use the NAGI model and that model is just inappropriate for us, you know, on and on and on. It was funny, you know, and they kicked me out of the reference committee, so I couldn't bring it couldn't bring it to the house. So I thought, okay, well, maybe we need to go about this in a different way, you know. So <laughs> how big, did you do it? Big internet, well, we had three-step, big international conference and then bring everybody from around the world and then show us just how far behind we are, you know, and, and not in a negative way. It was just I've... I've always thought the word patient isn't appropriate because it insinuates that there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And they do have something wrong, but we all have things wrong with us. You know, and uh, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be empowered to assist us in understanding how to help, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's. You know, and 3-step did it, you know, it didn't take a couple years until the APTA says, oh dear, we need to embrace the ICF model, which I found kind of humorous. That's great, you know. So are you planning to go to 4-step? You know, I don't know. Yeah, it really depends on when and I'm about ready to make a transition from writing the kinds of textbooks that in writing, you know, the professional literature writing um, about life experiences and I've had a lot of healthcare experiences that that um, I think the first book will uh, relate to how to empower individuals to their own health and the responsibility of that health and I mean I can have many funny stories about me and doctors because I have I have maybe 10 specialists now and not one of them has ever been able to give me a diagnosis, you know, but I've got multiple systems. I mean, I'm not like on dominoes, but you know, I go, okay, you guys say my health is three or a four and I go, oh. but there's mind, body and spirit. And so if my physical health is three or four, my mind and my spirit are tens, I add it up and I get to, you know, 24 and I divide it by three and I go, okay,
0: well, maybe I'm an eight, you know? Well, I gotta tell you, the first thing I noticed, I was like, "Who's that lady talking with Sue Whitney wearing the rocker shoes?" So, what do you think about the rocker shoes? Well, probably,
1: I have peripheral neuropathy, and um, I have it because I have a, a clotting disorder, and so I've had a lot of permanent clots, and so I've, you know, I've had, I've had internal neuropathies, and I've had peripheral neuropathies and and you know I I think you just live with those things you know you don't but I when I when my balance was going you know so if you put me on the smart and you (laughs) took away vision I just fell Mm -hmm. you know I just I couldn't compensate and then I developed Meneers so you know then you had the vestibular component to it and I go, okay, it, my eyes are not going to be able to compensate for that. And when I saw the shoes, I said, okay, that would force me all the time to have balance. You, know, you have and to so, work on it. And I, had, I used a cane for four years, five years. No cane today. No. And and what I was telling Sue is that what I find, as a neuroscientist, what I find fascinating is I feel my whole foot in my head. I have awareness of my image of where my foot is as I shift my weight on my feet except when I take my shoes off I feel my feet I don't have any feeling.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: So my brain has rebuilt my somatosensory body image from my knees down and I have at a cognitive level I have no gaps I don't have any voids I don't You know it isn't, I mean I I know intellectually that I can't feel the skin at some place, but when I'm on, when I'm walking and I'm moving, I feel my foot as much as you feel your foot, which I find fascinating, it's Mm -hmm. that kind Mm -hmm. of study of, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to live in this body that I live in because it has accommodated, you know, and I just absolutely refuse to let physicians you know, take that medical diagnosis. I mean, for example, I have a flaccid bladder, okay? And you know, when you say, why do you have a flaccid bladder? Probably because I have propranopathy pro- leading pro- pro- to the toruser, right. and that's how I, you know. I mean, the neurologist that I know, at Kaiser, and uh, he said, what do you think? I said, I think this is probably the reason. He says, yeah, that's probably, why I agree, you know. And, and uh, so I met the u- urologist. Um, because I was finding it wasn't I was having a problem but it was I just didn't feel like drainage was fast Mm -hmm. and it wasn't because I just relaxed and you know as long as I had but the doctor's response after he did all the studies you know and they inflated my bladder to like you know 1500 cc's and then just stopped and I there was no muscle activity at all, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, he he came in and he said, "Well, your bladder's useless." And I said, "I don't think so." And he he looked at me and, you know, he didn't know how to react to my. I said, "Well, isn't the bladder a storage container?" And he says, "Yes." And I said, "My bladder stores fluid." He said, "Well, yes." And I said. as long as i have control over the external sphincter i'm good i'm good and as long as i make sure i empty it frequently enough that i don't wind up you know Mm -hmm. injuring myself it's as good a bladder as anybody else's (laughs) (laughs) you know and so it's it's Uh been a it's been an adventure you know uh and i could give you many many stories about doctors and you know them not I, probably the best story was when I was in ICU and I literally bled out into my abdomen. I had a pelvic fracture. I fell and broke my pelvis in two places. And, and so I'm in ICU and I, you know, I look like I'm about 14 months pregnant. You know. And um, anyway, about two weeks later, the doctor that was the primary physician in the ICU comes in and shuts the door pulls the chair over to my husband and I and he says okay I know what has medically been wrong with you and I know what we did medically and I know you can't still be here so how are you here you know And? and that I said there's a lot more to health and wellness than what medicine can provide you know and when it's time to go it will be
0: time to go and that's all right and it's not your time yet. It's not yet. my time yet. You know, so, so most therapists know you as the author of, quote, the book. So what what, uh, what led to that? Yeah. What led to that? I
1: was told in my first teaching job when I was teaching at Temple University in the early 70s, my colleagues came to me and they said, you need to write a book. You need to write a book that's an integrated approach, that really looks at the science of the nervous system versus a technique. And I was a textbook dyslexic, so the thought of writing a book practically drove me to drink, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was because I'm going, a book? What do you mean a book, you know? And uh, after I finished my doctorate, um, and I got my doctorate in 78, for the next couple of years, I th- kept thinking about that book. I said, there's just no book there. There's no book out there. And if what I could do was create a book that was a model, then a lot of books could be written you mm-hmm. just because then you at least have the model to write off of it. You know, Maybe you don't agree with all the things that are in that book, and that's fine, but you at least now have the framework to write an integrated book. Mm-hmm. And so I decided in um, 1980, I was going to go and talk to publishers, and I had this commitment to the profession to do that. And I came to, um, I don't remember if it was CSM or an annual, but they came to me and they said, we'd like to do this three book series and we'd like you to be the editor of the Neural world. And so I go, okay, well that obviously, everything's going in there, you know, with that kind of coming together, I, um, I started, you know, conceptualizing the, the book. And, and then what I did is I looked for colleagues that I thought were master clinicians, mm-hmm. but also scientists.
0: So who came to mind for that first edition? A lot of the people that are still authors in them. I mean, um, yeah,
1: Jane Sweeney's the chapter on uh, neonatology, um, Chris Nelson, and now um, another, call. I mean, people have stepped up to the. But each chapter, you know, what was funny is I think only two of us of all the authors, and we had probably thirty-five authors in the beginning. Only two of us had PhDs, and over the evolution of that book, everybody has PhDs, mm-hmm. and it's because those master clinicians are masters because they love to learn, and so going on and getting more information, and you know, it's just a process that that we all went through. Um, and you know, they're all pretty much leaders in the field. And I think it's because they really have come from a strong clinical base. They're not researchers, you know, and I, and I you know, I hope that education won't get to the point that, you know, people only think research versus master clinicianship, because you know, I think that as we look at efficacy and we looked at evidence-based practice, the only place we're ever going to grow is if people discover things in the clinic that then researchers, I being one, can then do research on those concepts that they have found. But if people in the clinic are bound to only treating based on evidence, they'll never discover anything, you know, and then our field won't grow. So I, I you know, obviously, I've strongly believed that you you look for the science, you look for the evidence. You you know, you don't just randomly do things. Uh, but I also believed very on in my heart, as a young graduate, that if what I was doing looked right, that is, it looked like normal, mm-hmm. and the patient was enjoying what. I was doing and they were they were taking over what I was doing um, and I was enjoying it whether I understood the science behind it at that time it had to be in the right area it ha- I had to be doing something right whether I understood why I was right and I spent my whole life trying to figure out those answers but now I can very easily say well if it looks right it's effortless and if it's effortless it's falling in the domain of normal movement. And so, it is right. Now we just have the science behind to say why it's right, you know, and, and refine the why, as far as, you know, type of practice and repetition of practice and, you know, disassociating cognition from motor and, you know, and, and then my real love since early on has been the limbic system. Um, and. Because I felt that the limbic system played a key role in motor. And even as a young person, I felt like I had to make that system go neutral before I could evaluate motor. Because it, you know, if somebody's angry, you have this specific kind of tone. If somebody's depressed, you have other kinds of tone. But that isn't motor tone, that's being driven by the limbic system. And so even in the first edition, I had a chapter on the limbic system. And and the first five editions, you know, the publisher would have send the book out for a review. And I would get back. We teach the limbic system in the neuro neuro course. We don't need a chapter. And then I'd write a more chapter because I go, I didn't get it across yet. You know, I haven't gotten it across that this is a really important system and that it drives motor just as much as motor drives motor. And if we don't separate it, We'll never have an accurate motor. We'll never get efficacy because, you know, we never establish good evidence because part of the behavior is being driven by an entirely different system, but we're calling it motor. And so, you know, it's only been the last five years that this whole limbic system has become, has been discovered. <laughs> discovered, <laughs> I like how you use that. <laughs> you know, that, boy, you know, maybe we need to understand, you know, and somebody, I mean, in the you know, it, At annual somebody actually presented on you know the role of the limbic system and i kind of chuckled i go you know it's taken a long time for us to get there but you know we are evolving and um, i very i've told colleagues you know you you know you do you want to be do you want to be a visionary do you want to be a leader because it's hard to be both that is if if you're out there with your little hoe making a groove as a visionary It's the leaders that will identify the groove and then they'll know where to go. If you want to be, you know, leading, you want to stand up and lead, you probably can't be out as a visionary at the same time.
0: So are you a a gardener?
1: I am, I think that, you know, I I mean, I was given the great honor of being made a fellow, you know, and I always wonder why, because my leadership roles have always been backwards i started at the national level then i went to the state level then i went to the local level Mm -hmm. and everybody the process you're supposed to do is is the other one you know and so Mm -hmm. I, i my opinion of leadership is when they needed somebody to step in i was always willing but my real love is 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 being a visionary is is saying you know where are we going why are we going there um it's It takes a lot of energy to be a leader driving the masses and it's really hard not to get caught up in that. And I just don't value getting caught up in that, this life, I'd rather be much freer. Now, a very close friend of of mine, Carol Davis, will tell you that, you know, everybody sees Carol as being out on the She's she's trying to ground you know, complementary approaches and alternatives, and, and so that's very threatening to many of us. You know, but she'll be the first to tell you that that my life experiences have driven me much farther beyond her life experiences, and yet I've chosen to be perceived as the grounded scientist because it makes people comfortable. You know, and then you can you can you can share and then people will be as open as they can be to hearing what you're sharing and some people will get a lot and some won't get a lot but I have to respect that they have the right to be open as much as they're comfortable being open so it's, it's, a, it's been a wonderful adventure. Yeah.
0: So what's your craziest idea that has either come to fruition or you think might be, be proved or recognized in the future? I don't know, you seem like a woman who's who's thinking out there.
1: Well, I think that um, health and wellness and healing is based on a lot more than what we see today. And I think there are many planes of consciousness. And I don't know if, you know, I mean, I have my beliefs and I have, you know, but I, um, I think that many of the patients I have treated have just been on a different plane of consciousness. And the only thing I did was relax enough to go to it, find them, you know, without talking, ask them if they want to come back. And if, they're, if they can, bring them to consciousness. And it's nothing more complex than that. But it's certainly out of our parameter of understanding, you know, and I think that we have higher planes of consciousness. And I have had many experiences where you would might think I should be hospitalized because, you know, for example, I can remember one time I got on a plane. I had been up in Boston for the weekend for alumni and I went to sit down and this gentleman sat next to him. He was in the window seat. I was in the middle. And he said, do you know you're radiating colors? And I said to him, yes. And I'm thinking, yes. Where did this yes come from? But it was almost like I stepped out of me, and then I watched me interact with this gentleman from Boston to Philadelphia. And he said, you know, I don't believe in God. And I said, that's hard for me to believe that. You know you're a Native American and then I started rattling off Native American heritage and and their belief system of which I did not know so it it, but anyway you know we we landed in in Philadelphia you know the next morning I'm in at my office writing Neuro notes you know getting ready to teach Neuro and he calls me at 11 in the morning and he says I've been trying to get a hold of you since 8 in the morning and all I knew was your name was Darcy and you taught at Temple University so he he's I mean I'm amazed he even got to me but he said you know I talked to my wife about everything you said on the plane and we stayed up all night talking about it and then we watched the Sun come up and we knew there was a guy and I went I, I, a part of me was jealous because he was on such a spiritual high, and I'm writing neuro notes, you know, <laughs> back to the papers here. You know. But wow. as I say, I've had many, many experiences like that, that if, if you ask me, I just would love to understand how we've been given the honor to be part of this. That's kind of So it's if I said, what would be, you know, uh, the scientists in me would like to understand the process. The intuitive in me just buys that these things are there, and every time I experience one, I just put them in this little folder, <laughs> don't understand it. But they happen to me most of the time in front of groups of people, so I haven't had the luxury of saying it didn't happen, which is a good luxury you can use as a, neuro, as a scientist. That never happened because we don't have the efficacy to show that that's possible. So it obviously didn't. Well, when it happens in groups in front of people, it's pretty hard to say it didn't happen. The fact that I don't understand how it happened or what happened, you know, it's just so beyond our understanding. And yet, we're involved in something that's, that's wonderful. You know, we're in a wonderful profession. Because we are in a profession that should be empowering people to their own health. You know, that, that Western medicine can help them. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Western medicine, you know. Right. And, and right. I, you know, I, I constantly, with, with my doctors, you know, I, I finally asked my hematologist, you know, because I have this genetic clotting disorder, along with the bleeding. Condition. So it's kind of, kind of not understandable by medicine. But, I said, why am I coming to you for osteoporosis? Because i developed, you know, I'm like four and a half, or was four and a half standard deviations below the norm. I was four and a half standard deviations above the norm in 1990. And I was an active martial artist. And I got into martial arts to study what makes a master. I couldn't, I didn't know how I learned what I learned to treat patients. So I thought, well, maybe if I go in and try to relearn how you become a master in an entirely alien, the opposite of what we do, because in the martial arts you either direct energy coming at you back on the person or you deflect it. But what we do is we combine energies and and then empower the patient to the whole, you know. And so I, you know, I uh, started doing that, and it's it's been a wonderful adventure. But then I had to stop because I had this. Cutting disorder. And so I'm asking my hematologist, you know, why am I coming to you for osteoporosis? And her response to me is, I'm the doctorate of record that gave it to you. And I said, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) You mean, your field's laying that on you? And, and, And she was very... She, she wasn't emotional because she, she she believes in doctor-patient you know boundaries. I know, but she's really opening up. But she, I said, okay, then you have to take the other half of the puzzle. Osteoporosis death. Osteoporosis death. I'll take the osteoporosis. You've kept me alive for the last 14 years. So you have to take that on at the same time. And then I said, now, what type of doctor treats osteoporosis? And she says, well, an endocrinologist. No problem, I already got one of those. (laughs) You know, so it's, I mean, this life adventure has been fascinating, you know, clinically as well as this last 20-year ride.
0: Well, I understand you're a proud mother and grandmother. And... um, what's what's rewarding um, hold on I'm trying to think of a good question related to this um, well first of all when you started having how many children do you have two sons two sons so when you when you had your two sons did their birth and development and growth change how you were a therapist Oh, absolutely. they
1: they taught me
0: how you know I had taught development for
1: you know years. I, just, I, don't have um, I was 29 head. when I had our first son. So the first time I started teaching, I was 24. So for five okay. years, um, and i been, and I was already I teaching con ed by the post right professional now. work. And, then and contact, what right, what, what my younger son taught me, oldest son taught me very quickly uh, when you was you know the children come into the world yeah. inflection. They're biased, but they spend the first month or two months. Okay extending, versus they're working on flexion, which is was the process at that time. We thought, you know, they're, they're, they're working on flexion, that's why they're in flexion, versus they're not working on flexion, they're already biased to flexion. So if a child comes into the world and doesn't have that bias, gravity and their vestibular systems are going to bias them to extension and they're just going to get extended without the flexion. You know, and he taught me that you know, in 76, when he was, you know, an infant. And that was long before, you know, we were into evidence-based and understanding. You know, so they taught me, and I took pictures of our kids, um, every, every, probably every few days. And uh, I can remember one time looking at a picture of my older son walking off a park bench, except he walked off the park bench because he was at heel strike in midair on one foot as he was pushing off with the other one. And I'm looking at this picture going, there's something wrong with this. And yet by the time he hit the ground, he squatted and stood up. And I said, so, and and if you look at these pictures, the sequence of the pictures, he was in heel strike. So this was a hundredth of a millisecond before his nervous system knew something was really wrong because he didn't have any, you know, he didn't have any compression, the heel didn't hit. He got traction. So as he's coming down, the the heel strike leg still stays more in extension. And the swing phase leg is more biased deflection. And he is so concentrated in his head. And you, you know what he's doing is running around his head saying, what's happening? What's happening? Have I ever done this before? What does this mean? What does this mean? And by the time he got to the ground which is not very far off the ground cuz he walked off a park bench he he let himself he eccentrically caught himself and he stood up so the motor system went on the pilot he figured out he was falling and he knew what to do and that was you know in hundreds of milliseconds he's doing that and he gets up and when he gets up his face is in this concentrated look and then all of a sudden, this huge smile on his face, that aha moment. And then he went and jumped off that park bench for another 40 minutes, <laughs> one one after the other after the other. But I had no idea until I saw the picture. And I truly believe that picture was given to us because there was no way I could have caught that hundredth of a millisecond, you know, pressing mm-hmm. click on the camera. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a gift that was given to us, the world. And, 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 And so my kids, they've taught me so much, you know. um, I can remember my son, older son, when he came into my office, he went, both children went to the university I was teaching. And he came into my office and he says, you know, Mom, you know when you look at the energy around people and they kind of have holes in it or they're indentations and they they don't, you know, it isn't right, the patterns aren't right. And I looked at him and I said, No, I don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. And he says, "Sure you do, Mom. I've I've watched you correct that all my life when you treat your patients." Wow. You know, is is he my teacher?
0: Uh, Yes, he is.
1: You know, and the younger one, the same. You know, they're we're very proud of our sons. You know, they're very they're very young to be as successful. One's a lawyer. But he wanted an entrepreneurish law practice. Mm -hmm. Now it's growing faster than he can. But he said, "Mom, I want people to walk into our law firm, my law firm, and feel like they're at home, not like they go to a lawyer's office." And I said, "Well, gee, Jeb, then you need to have fresh baked something." (laughs) And they walk in. He said, "Would you do that?" I said, "Sure, I'll make cookie dough for you." And I've been making cookie dough for the last seven years. Oh, and yeah. he's really known, one of the things he's known for. You know, his, his clients know when they go into his law office, they're going to get fresh, warm cookies.
0: I imagine that really changes their interactions with him. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something safe and secure. Mm-hmm. And, um, knowing, and and we have four wonderful grandchildren. You know, we got we had one that's five now and then our older son and his wife had a little girl. Um, will be two years this April. And then our younger son and his wife had identical twin boys that August. Wow. And um, people, and they are identical. Wow. And people say, how do you tell the difference? And somebody asked me that today. And I said, do you know, they feel different. The, the mm-hmm. essence of them feels different, I, and I don't know if what I'm doing with my sensing and your breathing energies. Right. I know because I sense this one's likes and this one's came. Wow. You know, and uh, I talked, I was very concerned about them because they were in the same sac. you know, separated by just that film, mm-hmm. their velcro cords were very close together, you know, they're very, very high risk of having problems, and so I talked to them every night and they were in utero. And Lex was supposed to be the bigger one, a pound bigger than the So I talked to Lex, made sure he shared the food with his brother. Mm-hmm. And when they were born, Lex weighed six pounds and Cam weighed seven. <laughs> you, you facilitated that sharing spirit early, you know? And I mean, I, I find it fascinating. Huh. interesting. You know? I find it fascinating. You huh. know, the scientist in me looks at things like that and says, wow, you know, when we say we have to have evidence-based, I go, you know, there's just so much more to learn than what we have evidence for, and I would never want anyone to take that love of learning that I had when I graduated from PT school away from any recent graduate, because I think that's what will make our field evolve, you know, and then we can go wherever we want to go. We we have this huge arena uh, that we can, we can go into, you know, as long as we don't, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot and narrow our, <laughs>
0: so. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking time to talk to me this evening and um... And just for the record, it's uh, January 23rd, 2013, here at Combined Sections meeting in San Diego, and it's really been a pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure. I've have many, many stories. You <laughs> certainly do. And I actually had one question. I had a mind blank. I can't recall the name of your book. It's called Neurological Rehabilitation. That's what it is. I was like, I know this. I have it on my bookshelf. And, so, yeah.
1: Neurological
0: Rehabilitation. And it is it's a right. family
1: book. You know, it was no one person was any more important in the evolution of that book every mm-hmm. author you know um, it doesn't belong to anybody it just belongs to the field you know? Great. And, yep. and, uh, it's it's you know think that I've been working on that book for you know 33 years is kind of scary <laughs> I believe that but well, okay. we've